Welcome to the Edible Alpha podcast series, your source for actionable insights into making money in food. I'm Tara Johnson, the Tara's Way Lady, and we're here to talk to a wide range of stakeholders about what it really takes to grow a financially viable food business. Hey, Henry, thanks for joining us today. Hey, Tara. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. It's so good to talk to you as always. Um, I think I think the good place to start with this is just to have you introduce yourself and your business. Yeah. Um, so my name is Henry Ashauer, uh, co-founder of Forage Kitchen and Forage Kombucha. We have three healthy, fast, casual uh, restaurants in the greater Madison area, and then a budding canned kombucha company that spawned from the restaurant. And we're in maybe 750, 800 retail doors now throughout 15 to uh, 16, 17 states, something like that. Wow. So I think we met, it's probably a couple of years ago when we met. And I, at that point, I think you were just launching your kombucha. Yeah, I think we were having a conversation about expansion. Um, Mm -hmm. We might, I I don't recall the exact timeline, but Yeah. yeah, we were, Initially in glass, you know, the 16 ounce traditional glass bottles, uh, mm-hmm. just brewing the kombucha in the basement of our of our State Street restaurant. Right. Um, so it might have been during the transition to aluminum cans and mm-hmm. maybe talking through the different approaches of manufacturing in-house versus co-man and finding yep. finding space available and kind of how to how to go about um creating an actual production facility that was in yeah. a restaurant. Yeah. yeah, that was in a restaurant. Yeah, it's crazy. And now to now you're in 800 doors. That's great. So, we got to we got to go back. So, so when did you start your first restaurant? Uh, we opened in October of 2015. 2015. Okay. And did you intend to have multiple locations back then? I think that was always a goal or a presumption. We uh-huh had opened a restaurant called Roast Public House in 2012. So that was our first restaurant, but that was a, you know, a a full service traditional restaurant where you get a menu and you have a waiter wait on you, Mm -hmm. um, you know, have have a little bit of wait time and do the the full meal. Um, And then Forage was definitely a shift to that um, fast casual concept. And mm-hmm. we saw restaurants on the East coast and the West coast definitely gain in popularity with that type of model. Um, so yeah, I think it was always kind of assumed that we would have multiple locations, mm-hmm. but still at that time there was no, you know, investment vehicle for that. Um, something that we, we thought that we would, you know, cross that bridge if it came, came about. Yeah, if it actually worked, if the concept worked. Yeah, good. Yeah. And what? so what was the concept and what is the concept at this time anyway? Yeah, we always call it like a healthy, fast, casual concept. So mm-hmm. when we opened, it was solely salads. Um, we had probably eight to 10 menu items with the build-your-own option as well. So the build your own comes with two different bases, uh, a couple of standard ingredients, so essentially vegetables and then a salad dressing. And it starts at a base price of, I think at that point it was six fifty. Now it might be up to six ninety five. Um, and then a salad dressing. And then the customer has the ability to, to add any additional premium ingredients in there. Mm-hmm. And, you know, with any business, you have high hopes and expectations that you're just going to open the doors and people are going to flood in. <laughs> flood in be, yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, a deluge of people. But um, we definitely had a couple of days, like right when we opened, and then there was a little bit of a lull. Mm-hmm. Um, and then in, you know, then we definitely had the, the winter. Um, Doldrums. Yeah, being on State Street. Uh, definitely close to the university and the majority mm. of our customers were either affiliated with the university or, or students and December and January were tough. And then 
we had the introduction of, of grain bowls. So essentially a salad built with rice as the base or quinoa as the base instead of, um, or in addition to uh, salad or, or lettuce. Mm -hmm. And that definitely helps um, increase our popularity and attract a wider variety of uh, clientele. Mm -hmm. So that is the concept, quote unquote, that's what it still is, right? The the grain bowls and salads. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, Distilled down for sure. There hasn't, I mean, we've obviously made menu changes and um, we'll continue to make menu changes and have introduced items and removed items, but yeah, at the core of it, that mm-hmm. that's the idea. Um, mm-hmm. and then the kombucha kind of came from initially, you know, we knew with the food that we were serving, we didn't want to have, uh, like any traditional like Pepsi or Coke dispensers or even soda right. at the store. We wanted it to be a experience that you didn't necessarily need to think through whether or not something was healthy for you. It was just kind of like the Uh assumption. If you come into the restaurant, it was going to be relatively healthy for you. And initially we were making our juices and lemonades and iced teas. And the only other beverage that we were kind of bringing in, um, that we weren't making in house was, was kombucha. So you said, okay, well maybe we should be making our own. Yeah. Um, probably a little bit of naivete and (laughs) being young and, and maybe not having as many constraints as somebody that's a little bit more established might. Um, yeah, we decided to, to tinker around with the idea, not knowing full well what that entails in terms of getting a HACCP plan approved by that cap and, or Department right. of Ag here in Wisconsin. Um, and then the city and Dane County Health Department. So that took probably a year uh, just going mm-hmm. through that regulatory process. I think it was January of 2017 is when we first started selling our own kombucha in the, in the store. So it was still, mm-hmm. you know, definitely a couple of years after we opened our first yeah. restaurant. So did you have more restaurants when you did that or? No, we opened our Hilldale location in March of 2019 and then Monona in September of 2019. So, okay. So March of 2019 and September of 2019, you opened two new restaurants and you're growing your kombucha and then COVID happened. How did COVID help impact you? Um, so I guess stepping one step back, even from that yeah. in October of 2018 is when we made the switch from producing the kombucha at the restaurant to like a standalone production space for, Oh yeah. Yeah. Okay. We're right off Verona road and in, in Fitchburg, Wisconsin. Uh-huh. Um, so if you guys are ever in the area, come stop by. And, um, we saw, you know, huge growth from 2018 to 2019, just being able to expand our capacity. But we were also started picking up a couple regional distributors at that point. So mm-hmm. in 2019, we were definitely able to expand significantly. And at the end of 2019, we were anticipating to 2020 to be a, a year of sustained growth based on right. progress that we had kind of made the year previous. Um, and, you know, it goes without saying that it was a, a troubling time for getting new products in front of people that are making decisions at grocery stores. Right. Um, Anywhere. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I know I had this conversation, um, boy, four or five years ago with Johnny Hunter about launching a brand. So they launched, um, you know, their meat, their prepared meat stuff, their hard cured salamis under underground brand. And he said, you know, it was so beneficial to us to have our own restaurants and our own catering to be our customer in the beginning. Um, how did that play out for you with the kombucha? Yeah, I think it was instrumental as well. It 
and it still kind of continues to be um, probably more so now from a financial standpoint and from a cash flow standpoint, more so uh-huh. than like a product development and testing standpoint. Uh-huh. Um, but yeah, initially just being able to have, um, you know, one store that's guaranteed to purchase and sell all of the kombucha. Right. But then we can also say, you know, it's selling really well at our own store, like, mm-hmm. hey, other coffee shop or restaurant, mm-hmm. would you like to try to, to sell it at your store as well? And obviously mm-hmm. being in Madison, um, while we weren't, you know, a, a, a brand name throughout all of Madison at that point, um, there was some familiarity with the restaurant. So that made it slightly more easy to go to other restaurants and, and, um, sell them the idea and then eventually go to, to grocery stores though, you know, the first grocery stores that we were in were definitely local grocery stores. And then that then allowed us to, to have a test case for local grocery stores that then we could go to, um, you know, grocery stores in say Milwaukee or Minneapolis at that point. Sure. Sure. Yeah, no, I, it, it's such a struggle for brands like a beverage brand when you launch, right. To like, how are you going to get trial in the first round of things? Right. And, and having it be having the restaurant known and having it be served in the restaurant has got to have helped with that early stage. Yeah, I would think so. Yeah. I, um, I think maybe as somebody that's, deeply involved in the brand, I might Mm -hmm. overestimate its impact sometimes too. Yeah. I suppose there might be instances where I'll argue that, you know, we're getting benefits from either the kombucha sales, driving people to the restaurant or, you know, restaurant sales, making people familiar with the kombucha if they go to the grocery store. Um, Because that, it sounds really good. I just, it's, it's hard to quantify whether or not that actually happens. Um, you know, like we are pretty well distributed in Minnesota. It uh-huh. like just as a thought experiment, if we open a restaurant in Minnesota, just because we're present there with kombucha, like will that right. restaurant have a leg up as opposed to mm-hmm. a, another territory? I'm not sure. We haven't tested it yeah. yet. But yeah, yeah, it's an interesting idea. thought, right? Yeah, yeah. And so when you and this this probably did is a way that the restaurant impacted you. So you're interacting with customers all, all, all the time when you were doing product development, like you have a, you have a flavor profile for your kombucha. That's a bit different, right? It's part of how you differentiate yourself. Yeah. And mm-hmm. now in the sense that I feel like there are more approachable flavors, right? There are, that yeah. has been part of your brand for since the beginning. Yeah, I think that the that was intentional as we made the switch to cans and the mm, okay. packaging design for the cans as well. Um, but to your point, having the restaurants and having the flexibility of, you know, initially having just a, a HACCP plan to sell the product out of the restaurant really allowed mm-hmm. us to try a bunch of different flavors essentially um i haven't thought about this in a while but the question kind of brought it up um you know initially when we started brewing the kombucha our idea was that there were or there still are so many kombuchas that you know it's a traditional 95% kombucha base with 5% fruit juice added to it. And that's where Mm -hmm. you're getting the flavor from. Um, And a lot of the, a lot of the brands are using not necessarily premium or high quality tea to make that kombucha to begin with. And then it's just kind of dumbed down with fruit juice. Mm -hmm. Uh, So initially we wanted to buy, you know, not necessarily like the most premium tea, but really high quality tea. We've always sourced from Rishi. Um, Mm -hmm. And, you know, they have a a wide range of varietals of tea. And we definitely weren't buying, you know, tea that's $100 per pound, but um, definitely 
higher quality than the majority of kombucha companies. And, you know, we thought it would be fun to have different types of tea be the different flavors of kombucha. So if we, you know, brew up a, a oolong tea versus a white tea and just package it without adding any additional flavorings, like what it would taste like. Mm-hmm. And we were getting, yeah, pretty, pretty decent sales. Um, uh-huh. But then I remember the first time that we brewed a batch with their raspberry green tea. They just have a, a green mm-hmm. tea that they infuse with some dried raspberries and hibiscus. And it had a beautiful red color and it tasted really good, but it definitely had like some additional flavorings to it, not just the tea. It just sold really well compared to yeah. the, the, you know, just like a traditional oolong or white tea. So that's kind of what pushed us in the direction of having, you know, flavor forward uh, tea blends as mm-hmm. our, our skews. Um, and it, it, that would have been very difficult to come to that conclusion if we didn't have the restaurants. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very, you know, brands who don't have restaurants, right. They have to take things, they have to go develop things somewhere and then they put it in front of customers in an organized way. And then they go back and reformulate. Like it takes forever to, to go through that cycle. And it would be easier for you guys because you're right there with people. Yeah. And we can see how many cases we go through and you don't have to try to solicit any feedback from people. Mm-hmm. Um, you can just do it, not necessarily convert, uh, covertly, but mm-hmm. you don't have to, you know, ask somebody to look, fill out a survey because I feel like oftentimes people aren't necessarily a hundred percent truthful. If you're, you know, at a sampling event and you say, Hey, what sure. do you think of the kombucha? They're going to probably tell you one thing and maybe think, think the other. Right. Especially in the upper Midwest when where we're nice. <laughs> Yeah, that's a good yeah. point. <laughs> yeah, no. In New York, people would tell you that sucks, right? But yeah. Anyway, um, all right. So, so you went you, when you started. You were in glass bottles, correct? When you started selling out of the restaurant, you were in glass bottles. And then, what made you think about changing up and going into cans? It was mostly driven from the fact that as kombucha consumers like prior to launching a kombucha company mm-hmm. we were never thrilled with the fact that a single serving of kombucha cost on average three dollars and fifty cents so right. we thought that it would be kind of cool if you could come in with a more affordable approachable kombucha and we were spending uh, like 75 76 cents per um, unit and packaging mm-hmm. when we were in glass bottles and, you know, sure we would have been able to decrease that if we were ordering truckloads or at least multiple pallets, but, um, still definitely more expensive than aluminum cans. And I'm sure your listeners and you obviously know, um, you know, 30, 40 cents, can go a long way when you add in all the different levels of, of distribution and margin that needs to, needs to be factored in before it hits the grocery store shelf. Right. Right. So, so it was cost. And I, I mean, there's also sort of a convenience thing, right? Like anything that's in glass, you can't ship it real well. You know, there's some other benefits to being in a can. Yeah. Um, convenience, uh, affordability from transport is definitely a factor too. Like mm-hmm. we're probably able to put more cases on a pallet than you would be able to if we were in glass bottles. Um, mm-hmm. And then, you know, there's uh, an environmental impact as well. Obviously there's, um, you know, discussion, a healthy discussion over whether or not aluminum is better for uh for the earth long-term mm-hmm. and you know, glass bottles, but um, glass is traditionally like extremely difficult to recycle. So mm-hmm. while you might argue that you can recycle glass bottles, it's, it's extremely difficult. Um, whereas that isn't necessarily the case with aluminum. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay. So 
you decided to go into aluminum cans and it did, did you end up doing some product reformulation when you did that? I think that we, so we launched with a, the raspberry green tea that I mentioned. Yeah. And then at that point we had our original ginger skew. So that was a traditional um, ginger kombucha where mm-hmm. we would brew a, a base uh, fermented tea and then add ginger juice and lemon juice to it. Um, and that we were still, we made the switch when we were still in the basement of our restaurant. Okay. Um, so we picked up our first distributor when, when we were still in the basement, um, just doing those two SKUs. And mm-hmm. then in October of 2018, when we switched to our new production facility, then we had the capabilities to add a couple additional mm-hmm. SKUs. So at that point we had four. So are, is the new production facility, are, are you using a co-packer or is that you? No, it's, it's us. Uh-huh. And how did you make that decision? Honestly, I think it was from exhausting <laughs> all opportunity to, to try to get a co-packer. Something, again, that I'm sure you're fully aware of. It's really hard to find a, a co-packer for like a, a small brand where right. you're not so small that you could be in, you know, a shared kitchen space, but you're not big enough to have dedicated um, production line time in a guaranteed uh, frequency, you know, like once a mm-hmm. month or once a week for some of these co-packers. And then the fact that it is fermented and there are bacteria and yeast that, you know, breweries try to intentionally keep out of their brewery mm-hmm. uh, that kind of close the door for that option as well. So right. at the end of the day, I mean, we, we, we liked manufacturing. Um, we like having the control over our schedule and we were able to, to find a location that didn't necessarily need too, too much investment. And it was a decent size for us to, to um, make the transition to yeah. the production space. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I was in a kombucha, I was in a facility that, that brewed kombucha and then the facility was left empty for like a year after they were there because they moved to a different facility and you could still smell the kombucha in there. It was like the, the, um, you know, the bacteria gets, it was like it gets in the walls or something. I don't know. I just, I believe that. I believe that. I mean, they're famed uh, old Belgian breweries that, will have wildly fermented beers Mm -hmm. and they make a point to, to never clean the inside of their facility uh, because all that bacteria is living in the walls and it's part, part of the, the flavor. um, Yeah. And it's kind of like cheese caves are like that too, right? That they're, that, that environment for that cheese is in that cave and you really can't, do that cheese somewhere else, right? Because of all the things that have happened in that particular aging space. So it just, it, it, kombucha is an interesting product to me because it is such a living product, right? Kind of the way, the way aging cheese is a living product. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Yeah. So, all right. So you have your own facility and you've got um, a canning line apparently. Yep. Uh, We have a, a forehead semi-automatic canner from mm-hmm. a company called Micro Canner out of Grand Rapids. Mm-hmm. So you have your own canning. You're you're doing, and I bet your batch sizes are bigger now. Yeah, that definitely contributes to us being able to have a lower SRP as well. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I haven't been into too many kombucha facilities, but there is an idea that, and it might apply to other small craft producers of food, that the smaller your batch size is, the better. Um, so I think that that's definitely 
something that's present in kombucha companies as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but we thought that, you know, it made sense as we relocated to a new production space to increase the size of our, our batches. So we would be able to brew less frequently, um, decreasing our labor and eventually increasing our profit. Right. Right. So, so you now are manufacturing at larger capacity and has, it sounds like you've experienced some improvements in your cost of goods sold as a result. Yes. Um, yeah. And overhead as, Mm -hmm. you know, obviously as, as we increase, um, there isn't that much added additionally to, to our overhead. Um, and yeah, for, for labor, we have two full-time employees, um, Mm -hmm. one part-time employee that helps out on canning days. And Mm -hmm. we still have a little bit of capacity with, with that. Um, so, Mm -hmm. so, all right. And, and the 800 doors in 17 States. So let's talk about how that happened. So you started in Madison and I'm assuming you went to, you know, other of by doors. Do you mean not, you mean retail stores, but also, I don't know, bars and coffee shops and that kind of thing. Yeah. That's Mm -hmm. becoming less of a focus. Um, um, mainly because it's hard to find a distributor that services all of the groceries or all of the bars or restaurants that we would want to be in. Um, we are with a a food service distributor. Um, Mm -hmm. that's a a produce based distributor out of Milwaukee and Mm -hmm. they are able to get us into a good amount. Um, Mm -hmm. we actually use, we use them now to bring the kombucha to our restaurant. Um, Oh, how funny. Yeah. But does seem like for the next couple years, we're going to put more of a focus on, you know, your traditional grocery store distributors. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Just because it, it, you, it seems to work better because of the distribution. Yeah. And you have the option or the ability to, you know, with, with one distributor, with one retailer, you know, add an additional hundred doors or yeah, 50 yeah. doors where, you know, with, with restaurants that doesn't really happen. Um, yeah, it's one at a time. And, you know, we'll, we'll get coffee shops or cafes or restaurants reach out to us and, you know, throughout Wisconsin. And mm-hmm. it's really hard to, to figure out who they're using as distributors. And then if there's any overlap um, mm-hmm. and not to say that we don't, care about that and we don't care about them as a potential customer um we just need to to be cognizant of where we spend our time trying to to figure out how to get into certain locations so in retail what are what distributor are you in so the first our first distributor who we landed when we were still in the basement of our restaurant was CPW co-op partners warehouse out of Minneapolis. Yeah. Um, so they, they've been a super solid partner. I know that I've mentioned it to a couple other Wisconsin based food brands. Um, if you guys mm-hmm. haven't reached out to them, definitely do. Um, yeah. They seem to be, I, what I like about co-op partners is it's a great first distributor for people because they're very patient with you, like right, and they they will do more handholding than other distributors will, like about the process of using one and what does it take to be successful. At least that's been my experience. Oh yeah, without a doubt. Yeah, we didn't even have well look, when they placed their first order. We didn't even have products like on a pallet. We didn't yeah, have right. any idea like how to get it onto their truck. Right. <laughs> They were, yeah, very patient with us. Yeah, yeah, they're um, super patient. And then um, they, mm-hmm. pay, they pay quickly. Um, they are very responsive. Um, yeah, there's zero complaints about CPW for sure. And, you know, as a kombucha company, they're servicing all of the co-ops and 
mm-hmm. Minneapolis and in Wisconsin for the most part. So mm-hmm. that's our our core customer, and they're mm-hmm. going to all of those locations. Is your is your product in refrigerated in the store? Or yeah, it is. is. It, it yeah. is okay. Um, so yeah, CPW was our our first, and then when we relocated. Um, La Perry Foods out of right outside of Detroit was yeah. our second uh, distributor. They've been a really good partner as mm-hmm. well, um, and have allowed us to to penetrate outside of Wisconsin. But they still mm-hmm. have definitely a good good uh, coverage in Wisconsin as well. And then we work with a company called Market Distributing in Minneapolis as well. And then, you know, your UNFIs and Cahies as well. Okay. So quite a bit of distribution. Is it all in the upper Midwest or? Um, we're in a couple stores out in Los Angeles, okay. California area, um, Texas a little bit. Um, and Is then, that H-E-B or? Uh, it's Central Markets. So. Central Market. Yeah. Um, okay. I was going to say Central Market may be my favorite grocery store. Yeah, I haven't been able to make it out there yet. Oh, you want to do that sometime. Really good things. We were just talking about going to Austin, Texas. It's so fun to go, and you yeah. get to go to Central Market then. Good point. Um, so yeah, we've we, we're starting to branch out a little bit outside of the the Midwest, um, mostly uh, westward. We haven't made any mm-hmm. um, progress on the east coast of the country yet. Uh, we trickle into to Pennsylvania, and then I think Lapeer goes down to Florida mm-hmm. every once in a while too. So there's yeah. some spattering, but nothing concentrated. Mm-hmm. And I mean, what I'm finding amazing actually is that you have grown despite COVID, right? In distribution. Yes and no. It has. It's been a grind. It's been. Yeah, well, it's always a grind. True. Yeah. Well, it, it 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 was definitely eye opening after trying to get distribution outside of the Midwest, outside mm-hmm. of Wisconsin or Minnesota, even um, where you know for the first year or so we were getting a lot of yeses from you know Festival yeah. Foods or the health market managers at the high V's or mm-hmm. Metcalfs. Um, but then once you start going outside and you're not necessarily local, it definitely becomes, becomes more difficult. Um, but yeah, we were able to p- pick up, uh, you know, a little distribution, uh, during COVID and it's definitely starting to, to open up a little bit now that there's what they like to say, the light at the end of the tunnel. Right. Right, right, exactly. Yeah, it, it's it, it's interesting, right? What you're saying about the local versus somewhere else. I think that it's a frustration for us in the upper Midwest because, or at least it is for me, because I watch brands have such a hard time getting traction around here just because we don't have that many people, right? And then we really do need to get to the coast to get at really large numbers of people. And I compare startups that like from up here that have to go through all that to people who start up like they're in the LA area, right? They're 20 million people. You never leave LA. right? right. And, and so it's, it's harder. I mean, they have, they have other challenges, right? But, but in a lot of ways, it's very challenging for brands like yours because our, our home market while, full of fans and wonderful is limited and just in terms of how many people there are. Yeah, no, I agree. And I think at least one thing that we've seen, and I'm not sure if this is something that you would echo or if um, you agree with, but you could argue that, yeah, while there isn't the population density, we still have Chicago and that's one of the biggest cities in the United States, but at least from the grocery standpoint, you know, it's kind of dominated by Kroger and Albertsons and they are very reluctant to sign off on a newer brand. If you don't have any traction or sales performance history in other divisions within that organization. So that's, that's one thing that's been 
uh, a hurdle to expand into Chicago, at least for us. Well, if it makes you feel any better. So I am one of my dear friends in life is um, Paul Willis, who was one of the founders of Nyman Ranch Meats, which has gone on to be a, you know, hundreds of millions scale company brand, right? A meat. And, um, and he has said to me for years, Chicago is a tough market. It's a tough food market. We do way better on the coast than we do in Chicago. It's just an interesting thing. Mm -hmm. And I think you're right. It's partly that retail is so consolidated into two main players it's, yeah, it's just a tough place to do business. People do better in Minneapolis, I think, the Twin Cities up here. But then that's 5 million people or something in the Twin Cities, which is not nobody, right? Um, It's actually the population of the entire state of Wisconsin. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But but it's not 20 million in LA, right? And that's just LA, right? It's it's just so different. yeah, it's just so different. And and kombucha is kind of a crowded category, right? There's it's not like right, you've got to be experiencing challenges just because of that. Yeah. Um so we're in the process of becoming certified organic. Uh-huh. I think it was something that we overlooked when we were launching or when we were, you know, making the transition and trying to go into grocery stores because we weren't necessarily getting any feedback from the local grocery stores that it needed to be organic or that Mm -hmm. there were other kombucha companies that were organic. So why would I consider yours? Mm -hmm. Um, And we've always used organic products like our cane sugar has always been organic and our tea mostly has. Um, with the exception of two skews that we needed to reformulate with with Rishi, but um, so we're going going through that process right now, just based on some of the feedback that we've gotten, so we can compete a little mm-hmm. bit better. And with the the two skews that did need to be reformulated, the price isn't going to be material enough from Rishi to us that we'll need to increase our prices. So we'll still be Mm -hmm. able to have, um, you know, a very affordable kombucha at a more compelling offering now that Mm -hmm. it is certified organic and still be able to reach that, you know, $2 and 50 cent price point. Um, Yeah. It is an interesting thing about a certified organic. I, I, you know, we just was taping another podcast where somebody here was saying, and this is in the meat space, don't need certified or organic. We do that. Like, and it's funny because in that category in meat, grass fed is much more an issue than organic or not. Right. And in the upper Midwest, I'm not sure people are all that attuned to the organic thing, but there are other parts of the country like the West coast and it's like pay to play, you know, you got to get to be organic or you're not in the store. Right. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, you're going through all that. That's good. And then I don't see a lot of kombuchas in cans. Yeah. That's another thing that's becoming more popular. Um, Mm -hmm. And I'm sure it will continue to trend that way. When Mm -hmm. we launched, there were a couple instances of other kombucha companies, nothing necessarily in the Midwest, but yeah, it's becoming, it's becoming more popular. I probably liken it to craft beer where there were a handful of craft beer companies that were canning and then eventually now, mm-hmm. you know, everybody's in cans. So it will either be, you know, the majority of kombuchas will, will be in cans or mm-hmm. the companies that are doing glass bottles will probably have like a canned offering as well. Which kind of leads us full circle back to your restaurants, right? Because like, all right, what is it that is going to be long-term defensible, uniqueness about what you do with your brand it's so hard um at retail when you have a wholesale product because so many you know you you start doing really well people copy you it was so funny the year tears way became the number one brand in the category and i think it was 2017 and that 
and they're like 200 and some brands in the category, right? So, so yeah, the minute we became the number one brand, like everybody started copying us, like, like almost sprouts had a can, you know, of whey protein that was almost the identical, um, label. <laughs> it was like, <laughs> it was crazy. Right. Like, and because it's so hard to, uh, you know, in food, it's hard to defend that. Right. You can't, it, you can't, I don't know, you can trademark your brand, but you can't patent anything. And so the connection to the restaurant, now we go like full circle. That's something that differentiates you. Yeah. Just thinking through your example with the imitators or the the duplicates of Tara's way, that was, you, you, you mentioned 2017. I feel like now the ecosystem makes it even easier for emerging food and beverage brands to, to start. Um, so I think that the trend's going to continue and, you know, people can either go directly online and spend a decent amount of money on advertisements so they can penetrate through direct-to-consumer sales. So I think it's a trend that's going to kind of continue. Um, so the way we kind of look at it is, yeah, having some authenticity and legitimacy behind the brand. And it's going to kind of continue to take time. Um, but I do think that, you know, having the overarching idea of creating food that is like healthy and, and uh, beneficial for individuals to, to live a healthy life does does kind of come full circle with the restaurants. And then we're going to kind of use that as our North Star when we think of additional product lines in the future to introduce. Mm-hmm. Um, not to say that we're not, you know, continued to, to be focused on kombucha and restaurants, but we think that the Forage brand has uh, good opportunities to, to reach people in other ways as well. Yeah. Yeah, because I, I mean, it was actually 2009 when we launched the brand Tara's Way. And I, you know, I launched basically at Expo West and, um, and in the organic pavilion at Expo West in 20, 2009. And before COVID, so what would that be, 2019 going to um, Expo West? I remember wandering around there thinking, I am so glad I'm not trying to launch Tara's Way now just because of the scale of everything, <laughs> yeah. right? The ecosystem, as you said, has made it so much easier to launch any kind of food company. And yeah. That, like I see more and more brands with just really eye-appealing packaging. Um, mm-hmm. I think that it's been a concentration for people. And there, there's, there, there are a, a lot of really good products out there that are both uh, satisfying when you eat them or drink them, but then also like visually appealing as well. But an exciting time to, to be a consumer in food as well. Oh, totally. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, I, I'm, I, for some reason, I'm just like, I was thinking about, wouldn't it be great to have a forage in the Milwaukee airport and then you could buy forage kombucha and take it on the airplane. I don't know why I thought about that, but I think it's because of the, like the possibilities of the connection to the, to the restaurants. And are, are you intending to have more forages? Yeah. The restaurants? Yeah. Um, yeah. you know, obviously COVID has been, uh, more impactful on the restaurant side of things yeah. um, than the kombucha, but yeah, we see, interesting opportunities that are starting to present themselves and will probably continue in the next couple of years. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, real estate opportunities that might not have become available. um, Oh, because of COVID they're more. Yeah. You know, Uh there's certain like real estate sites that just never have vacancies in certain parts of, of town. Mm. Um, And I think you're going to start seeing, you either do see vacancies now or you're going to start seeing them. So, mm-hmm. um, yeah, we definitely see opportunities to, to grow the restaurant side of things mm-hmm. as well. The- Did you, do, do you have things sort of 
what do I want to say, standardized in the restaurant to the point where it's really replicable now? We're working towards that. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I think that that's the, that's the goal. Um, uh-huh. We didn't necessarily think that way a couple years ago. Um, uh-huh. And having three restaurants in Madison, you can kind of drive to any of them and put, put right. the fire out if needed. Um, so yeah, it's definitely top of mind mm-hmm. before we say move to uh, a new market, whether that is right. Milwaukee or um, it, it would or Minneapolis. Or Minneapolis. Or yeah, it would yeah. probably be you know driving distance, but definitely mm-hmm. not a drive that you would want to do routinely. So right, yeah, we're getting there. You're getting there. Yeah, because I think people tell me that. Um, sort of proof of concept if you want to have a franchise business is three locations that get really standardized um, is sort of a minimum for anybody to believe you could replicate. Right. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, And I think by anybody, I think predominantly you're talking about investors, right. To them to look at and go, Oh yeah, I believe that this could become a hundred of these. Sure. Mm hmm. Yeah, it could either be investors or if you went the the franchise model. I mean, I, I think at three that would be a little early. Um, mm-hmm. It's not something that's yeah. In, it strikes me as early, early, but yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. You never know. Yeah, interesting. Well, and that you know, the more you're growing restaurants, the that'll bring the kombucha along. Yeah, I think mm-hmm. that's true. There are other ideas that we could implement first through the restaurant too, using that as a vehicle kind of similarly to to how we did with uh, the kombucha, Um, Mm -hmm. whether that is additional beverages. I mean, beverages make the most sense right now since we do have the canning line. Right. And you have distribution. Yeah, for Mm -hmm. sure. Yeah. Do you have brokers helping you too? Yeah, we have um, food brokers pretty much every, in every area that we, that we are cool. in currently. Um, mm-hmm. So we have a, a Southern California uh, broker that will branch into Arizona, New Mexico, mm-hmm. and Colorado. Yeah. Um, I guess we have a, a void in in California right now, just because we are just with the central markets, and we're in a KE distribution center that um, pretty much only serves central markets and the HEBs and in Texas. Yeah. So there's not much Mm -hmm. opportunity for growth there because HEB doesn't want you to be in both HEB and in in central market. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, yeah, in the Midwest, we, we have a a broker as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And did you, do you sell online at all? Or is that a thing for you guys or not? Um. Yes, it's not a main focus right now. I think it's something that we'll want to eventually get better at. Um, yes. Transporting a beverage that needs to stay cold is not the easiest and not the most fun, to be honest. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it was last March. Uh, we just threw something up on the website to see see what happens because there were so many unknowns and yeah orders kind of trickle in we'd get mm-hmm. I don't know any anywhere from like ten to twenty orders a week um, mm-hmm. so nothing major but it it is right your cold chain thing is a challenge yes yeah yeah and people is and that that's because of the living nature of kombucha, right? It has to stay cold. Yeah. It's not going to get you sick. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's not necessarily a food safety situation or concern. Um, the main concern would be it's in a can, it warms up, it then kickstarts the fermentation process again. It then right. overcarbonates in the can and then you open it and it, blows all over you. Oh, perfect. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's probably not good. Yeah. We want to, and it also, um, you know, becomes more alcoholic, right? 
Yes. Like there's a, yeah, that's what I thought. So that's the other issue that, you know, that kombucha people have. Yes. Um, there is, there is a act in, um, Senate right now called the kombucha act. The kombucha act. Uh, yeah. Really? Eight, eight, 892. Uh, wow. if you have any senators or, um, house of representatives on, uh, listening, um, it would be, we would be in, in support of increase. It's, it's essentially to increase the ABV threshold for kombucha from 0.5 to 1.25. Oh, interesting. Okay. So make it a little more or less burdensome, I suppose, you know, it could ultimately lead to a healthier beverage as well. If you let it ferment a little bit longer. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Reach a little bit higher. Yeah. Huh. Interesting. Interesting. Well, well, um, it, like what, what would that be for like the equivalent level be for wine or beer? Oh, I mean, wine's you know. anywhere from 10 to 14%. Uh, um, so it's all, I mean, yeah, you're not 1.5 is low, right? Yeah, you're it not drinking, like, uh, it would be 1.25. Um, 1.25. Okay. So yeah, you would still need to drink a significant amount to have adverse effects from the mm-hmm. alcohol that's in kombucha. Got it. I think you're, you would get a stomach ache before you get drunk. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. So, okay. Well, it sounds like you've got a lot of ambitions for growth in the future, which is so exciting. Um, how do you prioritize or how do you think that through? Yeah. Um, I think there is a good amount of just being nimble with opportunities that, that kind of present themselves mm-hmm. um, and seeing what's working and what's not. We did go through a scenario planning workshop um, that was Mm -hmm. really useful during COVID that allowed us to outline different potential scenarios in the future, whether that's, you know, one to three years away and kind of think through what your business could potentially look like. Um, Mm And then with those scenarios, kind of think through different strategies to, to get you to that point mm-hmm. or to um, get you through that point and still be successful. Mm-hmm. Um, and in addition to that, you know, we've, we do have uh, a handful of investors. So we do have some, some other individuals that have, uh, that are stakeholders in the business that are good sounding boards and have more experience than I do um, mm-hmm. in these situations that we're able to kind of come up with consensus on and, and chart our way forward. Mm-hmm. That's awesome. Yeah, we, we've been really happy um, when COVID hit. I was like, yeah, we got to have scenario planning as a, cause it's such a good mechanism to help people do planning in the, in an uncertain situation. Right. And, um, it's, yeah, it's proven to be really helpful. Um, I think for other people too. Um, yeah. And I don't think like, I mean, we've got plenty of uncertainty left, right? I don't, I think it's not, I mean, COVID and other things, right? So I think it's a really productive, um, skill to have as a leader. I think it's one of those situations where you put the initial work in and it might take some time, but then that, moves or carries forward with you when either a crisis hits or there's something in the news, you can kind of think through that with the framework that you received through that like strategic planning. Yeah. Yeah. No, that's awesome. It's awesome because especially for somebody like you who's got successful things going on multiple fronts, right? There's just lots of options for how do you can grow your business in the future. Yeah. It's super exciting. Yeah. Yeah. So how many people are on your team now just across all of the enterprises? Yeah. We probably have 60 employees at the restaurants. Yeah. Awesome. Yeah, you know, it obviously fluctuates. Um, our State Street location, it slows down after graduation. But yeah, on average, I'd say about 60 employees on the restaurant side of things and then mm-hmm. three to four on the kombucha. 
And and you've been using the cash flow from the restaurants to help with the brand, right? Uh, like the the forage sales. Or yeah, yeah, yeah. Sales? yeah. Um, that's been yeah, I would say crucial in the mm-hmm. beginning years, and definitely nice to like borderline crucial um, still, mm-hmm. where. Yeah we're able to not necessarily pull on a line of credit, you know, instead mm-hmm. we have the same ownership between forage kitchen and forage kombucha. So mm-hmm. there's no financial entanglements. If we take a loan out from forage kitchen to forage kombucha to, mm-hmm. you know, cover a, a can order that is going to be $50,000. Um, right, right. So yeah, having that, has been has been really nice. Yeah, no, it has to be like the cash cycle, right? Is so much different for a restaurant. Get people pay you when you get their food, right? And then suddenly now you're selling at retail and you're selling to a distributor. They don't pay you right away, right? You're on terms. You had to buy ingredients. You had to buy fifty thousand dollars worth of cans. So all of a sudden you have much higher working capital requirements. Yeah, our uh, accounts payable for kombucha is significantly higher uh, on average than than restaurants. That's for sure. Yeah, 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 and and inventory for cans and stuff. So it's just a much more working capital intensive business. And one of the great things about having a retail facing component is that you generate faster cash flow in that part of your business. Yep, definitely. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, we've covered a ton of ground here um, because you're, you know, ambitious and doing so much. What have we missed? Um, nothing comes comes to mind, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Just thinking about how we were talking a little bit briefly about the struggles that some whether it's Wisconsin or Midwest focused or founded companies might face just given our, our uh, population density. Mm -hmm. Um, With that said, I think that we still have like such a strong food ecosystem here in the Midwest, uh, especially in Wisconsin, um, that it's something that, that I'm definitely proud of to, to be a part of and to, be located here in Madison um, has has been great for our company and and for our standard of living, without a doubt. Yeah, yeah, no, there's a there's actually a lot to unpack there in that comment because I think here and because we're in a state like Wisconsin, food and beverage is a very big industry in our state, agric- and really big if you add agriculture. And so it's just an interesting thing when I work with brands around the country. They don't, their banks don't understand, they go to them with, you know, I need an operating line of credit or they, they don't understand it the way our banks do. You know, it's a subtle thing, but it, it's very, um, um, impactful over time to be in a place for, for where people understand that. Cause you have support, right. From financial institutions and accounting firms deal with manufacturing a lot here and, um, so yeah, it is. I think in that way, it's easier to start a food company here. Definitely easier to start one when you're going to manufacture on your own. Like investors on the coast, they they're always encouraging people to use a co-packer. It's like, oh no, don't do any of that. We're just going to invest in the brand. Whereas here, we're like, okay, well, there are all these issues that come up with co-packers yeah. and, and, you know, we're much more likely to manufacture on our own here. It's, a, it's an interesting thing. Um, yeah. So I agree with you. I mean, we, we have limitations here because we just don't have the population density, but, but there's some really, there's some really good things about starting a food company here. And then, Madison is kind of like a test market for the for, for coastal markets, right? Um, and it's you know the way a consumer in Madison behaves is going to be similar to people in the Denver Boulder area, or or you know what I mean. So 
and it's way cheaper to start something here. Yes. Than it would be in one of those places. Yes. And more accessible. And I touched on the standard of living. I can drive to any of our restaurants from my house in 10 minutes. I can drive out to our kombucha facility in 10 minutes. I can go home if I need to, to say hi to my wife. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah, you can't do that in Los Angeles. That's for sure. No, no. Or, or Seattle or, you know, yeah, yeah. no. And never mind, you can't afford a house. (laughs) 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 So yeah, no, there's a lot of, lot of attractiveness about that. And I think, you know, certainly this was true for Tara's way, the way consumers reacted to our brand and the feedback we got was very similar here to what we got on the coast. So it it was very helpful to be yeah. here. Yeah. Definitely. Well, hey, Henry, thanks for visiting with us today. It's been awesome to talk to you as always. Thanks for having me on. It's been an honor. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening. You can get more podcasts by subscribing on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And you can learn more about Edible Alpha by visiting our website at ediblealpha.org.